We have covered a lot of ground in previous episodes, talking about how God exists, miracles are possible, and the New Testament manuscripts and writers are reliable, among other things. And everything is finally coming down to discussing the evidence for Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. In this episode, I am going to introduce the topic of Jesus' resurrection by first discussing the significance of his resurrection and then surveying three types of arguments used to conclude that Jesus rose from the dead. So I hope you'll stick around to learn about three ways to argue that Jesus is who he said he was. Welcome back, everyone. In this lecture, we are going to be talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Finally, <laughs> this this entire series, we've been going over the three-step apologetic method. And now we are finally getting, after doing a lot of preliminary work uh, concerning the reliability of the Old New Testament writers, the New Testament writings, uh, and all the manuscripts, and some other concerns, uh, we are finally getting to the arguments themselves over why we think that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and he is who he said he was. So in this lecture, we're, we're going to... In this lecture, I was going to do similar to what I did with the arguments for God's existence. If you've been following this series from the beginning, you'll know that, you know, for example, I did it whenever I was trying to show evidence for God's existence... I, I did an entire lecture on the Kalam cosmological argument. So I spent a whole, what was it, like an hour and a half. It was a lot longer than I meant it to be. But I spent an, an entire lecture on just one argument for God's existence. But before I did that, I discussed several arguments for God's existence, uh, cosmological arguments anyways, just to give everybody a feel and to let you know that if you know if you're new to apologetics, there's more to it than just this one argument. Well, that's what I wanted to do in this lecture is to discuss the importance of Jesus' resurrection and then show that there's there's been more than one way that people go about arguing that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So that's what we're going to be covering here. Um, as you may know, I start all of these with a Bible passage. Uh, not not because I'm assuming that the Bible is true at this point, right? Uh, but just because I like to talk about different um, considerations uh, to do with the Bible passages throughout our lectures. For this lecture and the last one, our, our Bible passage is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3-8, which says, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over five hundred brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. If you didn't listen to the last lecture uh, on the synoptic problem, uh, I and and. I recommend that you go back and listen to that. If nothing else, just listen to the first five minutes or so 
where I talk about 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8, and why it's so important for Christianity, or at least it, it shows evidence that there was an early creed formulated not but three to eight years after Jesus died uh, that you see here. We think that there's internal, external evidence showing that Paul um, here, writing this letter in A.D. 54 or so, was using a uh, a creed that was formulated uh, just a few years after Jesus died. So it's evidence that from day one, Christians believe that Jesus was divine and that he died for all of our sins. So I wasn't going to talk about it here. I talked about it in the last lecture. So if you didn't see that, you didn't hear that, go back to the last lecture on the synoptic problem. And, and if you're not interested in the rest of it, at least listen to that. Um, I start all these also with questions for reflection. So I wanted to read a few. These are questions that you can be thinking about. Um, you can answer these questions in the comment section of videos, or you can send me an email. Um, it's, it's on my academic website. There's a contact form there. Um, but, but yeah, uh, here's the questions for reflection. Do you think Jesus' disciples would have continued to follow him if he faked his death and or survived crucifixion? Another question is, if the disciples were lying, would they have included the testimony of women in their gospel accounts? A couple more questions. Uh, third is, what is the significance of Jesus appearing to hundreds of people after his resurrection? You might already know the answer to that if you've been following our lectures. And four, if the gospels are made up stories, do you think that the writers would portray the disciples as confused doubters of Jesus? Finally, uh, our last question for reflection is, is the disciples' willingness to risk their lives any more impressive than a suicide bomber's willingness to die for his religion? Okay, like I said, in this lecture, I was going to start it off by just talking about the importance of Jesus' resurrection. And in, in this section, uh, I, was, I was inspired to put this in here, especially for my class that I taught on apologetics to, uh, to juniors and seniors at, at Kingdom Prep. But um, I saw this in a theology book by Charles Ryrie, and I just really love the way he put all this. So, you know, I'm sure if you're a Christian, you already know the importance of the resurrection. But I just thought that some of these were great. And what I'm, I'm actually not even going to be using my own words. And when I explain all four points, I'm going to be reading quotes from, uh, from Ryrie's book, Basic Theology. I think all of this was on one page at 308. So, uh, but what I was going to talk about is the importance of Jesus' resurrection uh, concerning his person, two, his work, his present work, by the way, three, the gospel, and four, the importance of Jesus' resurrection to us today. So, concerning, uh, so why is the resurrection important to uh, Jesus' person? Ryrie says, if Christ did not rise from the dead, then he was a liar, for he predicted that he would. Uh, you know, and you can see that in Matthew uh, 20, verse 19, for example. Uh, continue on with the quote. To the women who came to his tomb wondering where he was, the angel said, He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. The resurrection authenticates our Lord as a true prophet. Without that, all that he said would be subject to doubt. So, right, the proving uh, or, or showing that uh, Jesus rose from the dead is important because and and all of this evidence, you know, because it, it proves if Jesus really did rise from the dead, it proves that he was telling the truth because he said he would. 
<laughs> you know, we've talked about how some people think that Jesus is a moral teacher, uh, but hey, guess what? He said he was going ri- to rise from the dead. So if he really did rise from the dead, it proves that he was telling the truth. It proves that he was a true prophet of God, and it proves that he was sinless. We don't think that, um, you know, uh, for one, God said in the Old Testament to always be testing what the prophets are saying. If the prophets say something's going to come true and it doesn't, you know that they're not a prophet. Also, God uh, uh, sin, death is the punishment for sin. We learn that throughout the Old Testament. So when Jesus, if Jesus did rise from the dead, that also proves that he was sinless. So it just proves that he is who he says he was, right? So that's, that's super important uh, because of all the claims that are made about him. Uh, if he rose from the dead, it proves that all those things were true. Now, uh, Ryrie says in uh, regarding the importance of Jesus' resurrection to his work, Ryrie says, If Christ did not rise from the dead, then of course he would not be alive to do all his post-resurrection ministries. His ministry would have ended at his death. We would not, therefore, have a high priest now, an intercessor, advocate, or a head of the church. For the, furthermore, there would be no living person to indwell and empower us, um, as is mentioned in Romans one and uh, Romans six and Galatians two. Uh, so yes, this is important. If you if you don't know much about uh, Christian theology, um, uh, if you do read about this. Uh, you'll you'll realize that uh, what's important to Christians is that Jesus currently is at the right hand of the Father, and Jesus is acting as an intercessor for uh, Christians, also for everybody. He's he's praying that that everyone become Christian. Um, But he's praying for us. He is also our high priest, um, serving as the intermediate between people and God, because there's been a gulf between uh, man and God ever since Adam and Eve sinned. So if Jesus did not die, and, um, excuse me, if Jesus, yeah, if Jesus did not die and was resurrected, uh, then we wouldn't have a high priest. We wouldn't have an intercessor. And uh, Christians uh, surely would, would be in a bad spot. All humanity would be in a bad spot. Regarding the importance of Jesus' resurrection to the gospel, I'm, I'm sure you can imagine this is important. Uh, regarding this, Ryrie says, The gospel is based on two essential facts. The Savior died and he lives. The burial proves the reality of his death. He did not merely faint, only to be revived later. He died. The list of witnesses proves the reality of his resurrection. He died and was buried. He rose and was seen. Paul wrote of that same twofold emphasis in Romans 4, verse 25. He was delivered for our offenses and raised for our justification. Without the resurrection, there is no gospel. So, of course, yes, right? Uh, the resurrection, being able to, I mean, you know, you might not be able to prove it's true, but being able to prove it's true is, is so much better, right? Because if Jesus didn't really raise from the dead, then the gospel is meaningless because the gospel is all about uh, us needing a Savior and that Savior being provided and that Savior dying and being raised for our sins. So, uh, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, the gospel that Christians preach is meaningless. And a very related point is point number four, the importance of Jesus' resurrection to us. And, and, and uh, Ryrie here talks about something that Paul emphasized. Ryrie says, If Christ did not rise, then our witness is false. Our faith is without meaningful content, and our prospects for the future are hopeless. If Christ is not risen, 
then believers who have died would be dead in the absolute sense without any hope of resurrection. And we who live could only be pitied for being deluded into thinking there is a future resurrection for them. And yes, you know, if <laughs> Paul says it himself, if Christ did not raise from the dead, then uh, Christians above all are to be pitied. Uh, it reminds, he says it here in this passage. I'll go ahead and read it. It's after what we uh, looked at in, in 3 through 8 in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, this is 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 12 through 19. Paul says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. Um, so, of course, you know, the, the resurrection is pivotal. For It is the event that that is serves as the basis for all Christianity. If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, then no one has a reason to be a Christian. He was just another person who lived and died, said a lot of things, and he's gone just like the rest of us will. Uh, but So that's why it's so important to be able to know uh, the importance to, to know the facts surrounding Jesus' life, death, and, and what happened after he died. Uh, and being able to provide evidence that, that we think shows that he really did rise from the dead because there is evidence and it's not all taken on faith, okay? And um, like I said, I was going to show just do a survey of three arguments for Jesus' resurrection, and then we're going to focus on one of these, particularly... Uh, so I've got them listed here. Uh, the first argument is the Lord liar lunatic argument. The second one is minimal facts approach. The third one is what I've got listed as the trilemma argument, also known as the maximal data approach. And today I was going to survey these three to say a few things about them. And then in the next lecture, I'm going to focus in and give an entire lecture defending what's called the trilemma argument, uh, the maximal data approach. Okay. So the first one I've got listed here is the Lord Liar Lunatic argument. Now, having said that, I think I've heard some people call the Lord Liar Lunatic argument the trilemma argument. So, so note that they might, if someone calls it that, or, or if you call it the Lord Liar, uh, excuse me, if you call the third one the trilemma argument, and someone thinks you're talking about Lord Liar Lunatic, just know that that might be a possibility. Um, I, the trilemma argument has also been known as the modern trilemma argument to distinguish it from the Lord Liar Lunatic. So, I don't know, you might want to call it the maximal data approach to, to avoid confusion, but but either way. Uh, Lord Liar Lunatic argument is one of the older arguments uh, for Jesus' resurrection. In fact, it has its basis in Scripture, so maybe this is something that was already going around even in Jesus' lifetime. You know, uh, you see it in John's gospel, especially in John 8, uh, verse 55. It says, you do not know him, but I know him. If I were to say I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Uh, Jesus is saying that, you you know, uh, you might think I'm lying as I tell you all this, that I'm the son of God. 
but I'm not. I'm telling the truth. So some people thought maybe Jesus was a liar. In John 10, verse 21, it says, Others were saying, These aren't the words of someone who is demon-possessed. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So people back then, when Jesus was performing miracles, they were claiming that maybe uh, he was... Um, well, there's actually, there's that, there's that example and there's other examples. So, uh, you know, some people were saying that he had a demon, so maybe he was a lunatic, uh, or he was literally demon possessed. Uh, other, his brothers in, in other gospel passages show that, uh, his brothers thought he was crazy. So you see, even in the first century, people are calling Jesus a liar. People are calling him a lunatic. You know, maybe you're familiar with John 20 verse 28. Thomas it says Thomas responded to him, "My Lord and my God." So in the first century, even in Jesus' life, there were people that thought he was a liar, there were people who thought he was a lunatic or demon possessed, and there were people who thought he was Lord. Uh, and that's what the Lord liar lunatic argument is is about. And I'll, I'll I'll mention it here in a second. But this argument isn't just found in the Bible. It, it, like I said, it's one of the older ones. Um, arguments similar to this have been made by many Christians. Uh, let's, I've got a list. Uh, many Christians, including Sir Thomas More, if you re he was he lived in 1534 A.D. and you can see it in a dialogue of comfort against tribulation. John Leland, writing in 1773, wrote an answer to a lay book entitled "Christianity as Old as the Creation." Rabbi John Duncan wrote in Colloquia Peripatetica in 1860 a similar argument. G.K. Chesterton in The Everlasting Man in 1925 wrote a similar argument. In my mind, uh, the most famous example of Lord Liar Lunatic comes from C.S. Lewis, and I've, I've got it listed here. C.S. Lewis wrote this uh, in uh, something really similar in, in uh, Mere Christianity in 1942. But here, here's how the argument uh, is, can be listed. Right. It, you know, just to show you, uh, like we've done so many times before, show you a logical argument for it with premises and a conclusion. So premise one is if Jesus were not Lord, he would be a liar or a lunatic. Premise two, Jesus was neither a liar nor a lunatic. Uh, conclusion, therefore, Jesus is Lord. Now, I just want you to know that I, I, I really do love this argument. Like I said, it's one of the oldest ones. Basically, what you do, you know, you're just saying there's only three options. Jesus is either Lord, liar, or lunatic. And since we don't think he was a liar or a lunatic, uh, then the only other option is that he is Lord. Uh, the reason why this is the case is because, uh, you know, as we've mentioned before, Jesus isn't just a moral teacher. He didn't just give the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus made claims to being the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God. Jesus was claiming to be God while also giving all these moral teachings and making prophecies that, that the, the temple in Jerusalem was going to be destroyed in AD 70 and uh, that he was going to rise from the dead. Well, the evidence suggests that he was right with those prophecies, but the point is that he's making all these claims about himself while also giving the moral teachings. So while a lot of people think that he's a moral teacher, 
what if if they don't believe he's God, they need to realize that he made claims that he was God while he was giving the moral teachings. So you either take all of it as to be true and you conclude that he's Lord, or you have to say that he's a liar, a lunatic. But it's kind of a dilemma for the or it's a trilemma for the non-believer because they don't want to say he's Lord. But like few people want to say that Jesus was a horrible person or was crazy because his teachings and the way he carried himself, he didn't look like a lunatic. He didn't look like a liar. He looked like a good moral teacher. So it, it, they get in a trilemma. Now, the reason, but it's it's a fantastic argument. Uh and and I, like I said, I want to I want to read a it's it's a really long quote, but I, I just love it. It's from C.S. Lewis. He gives this argument. Uh, this is from Mere Christianity, uh, pages fifty five and fifty six, or somewhere around there. I'm trying. This is from C.S. Lewis. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claims to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. <laughs> so that's, uh, the, you know, C.S. Lewis always had a way with words, and that's a, a passage I love. But he's, you know, you see how he's making that Lord, liar, lunatic argument. Now, I still think the Lord, liar, lunatic argument is great, and it's got its place. The, the only, my only issue with it is, though, and we've talked about this before, uh, with the rise of higher critical scholarship has come a lot of uh, discrepancy. Uh, it's really the this anti-supernatural bias, you know, at, um, after the Enlightenment and, and, and a lot of uh, uh, things that we've talked about before, mainly around the, the lecture with the possibility of miracles, Western civilization and, and all around the developed world, there is this hangover from this era where people just didn't believe in miracles, okay? So, but that's the whole reason why we've been doing what we've been doing, where we try to establish the truth, try to establish God's existence, and show that if God exists already, then miracles are possible. The thing is, the Lord liar lunatic might not be a trilemma for people today, because they might think that miracles are impossible. So they, it's a lot easier for him to say, well... No, I think all of it was made up because I don't believe in miracles to begin with. Does that make sense? The, the objector isn't forced to... Some of them might think it's all mythical to begin with. You know, uh, maybe Jesus never even existed. But, the, the, but others might think that miracles are impossible, so they don't really have to take it as seriously as the, as, as the 
argument assumes you do. Does that make sense? So that's one of the reasons why I don't like it as much. Because if you're going to need to establish these other things, you might as well use the other arguments in the way they're used. If you're going to need to establish the reliability of the manuscripts, establish the uh, reliability of the authors, then you're going to basically be doing something more along the lines of argument, the, the minimal facts approach or the maximal data approach, okay? I do think, though, that if you do come across somebody, because I've talked to people in my own life where they mention, well, I think Jesus was a moral teacher. That's when I go straight to the Lord, liar, lunatic and I argument, and I emphasize that you, know, you, you can't just say he's a, a moral teacher. Because did you realize uh, he claimed to be God? <laughs> I think another thing that people don't think of a lot, too, is that not only did he claim to be God, so he, either, he, he can't be a good moral teacher because if, if he wasn't God, then he was a liar, right? Um, another thing is people don't realize the extreme that his moral teachings went to. You know, if you study the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, he wasn't telling, he wasn't giving people more moral commands uh, that were just like the old ones. He was saying, you know, if, for example, he, he said, you've heard it said that uh, you shall not murder. But then he says, but, but, but I say to you, if, even if you hate your, your brother in your heart, that is committing murder. What he's saying is that we, we can't just follow these rules. We have to, we have to be uh, living these rules out in our hearts as well. And when you read through the whole Sermon on the Mount, you realize that there's not a single person alive who, who can do any of these things. And not, not only that, but Jesus tops it off with, be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. So what kind of moral teacher are we talking about here? He claimed to be God, and he gave us a moral standard that nobody can reach. So, uh, so I like to emphasize those things. If someone tries to say that he's a good moral teacher, to open it up so I can talk about these other arguments for Jesus' resurrection. Uh, it's just a great point to make if someone's at least willing that, uh, to, to grant that Jesus existed and that he taught some of the things that the Bible says he taught. That's when you can start saying, well, you know what, the Bible says a lot of other things, like he, he was God. Okay, but th- that's a good one. It's a great uh, oldie, and if you are interested in it, I definitely would at least check out um, C.S. Lewis's take on it. A newer approach to defending Jesus' resurrection is what's called the minimal facts approach. And this has been made popular in recent years by um, uh, evangelical scholars Gary Habermas and Michael Lycona. Um, Gary Habermas and Michael Lycona both, well, uh, Dr. Habermas has a degree in philosophy, but at, at a secular university, he actually wrote his Ph.D. dissertation on Jesus resurrection and and you know obviously he got it uh he he got his PhD so so he he wrote some good stuff not necessarily you know proving to everybody that Jesus rose from the dead but showing everyone that it's reasonable at least uh but th- that's a that's a whole story in itself but he's a philosopher but he specializes in the history in history and in all the events surrounding Jesus death Michael Icona is also more of a historian than anything, also a bit of a philosopher. But the, both of them specialize in Jesus' resurrection. And they wrote a book called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. Uh, this is a popular-level book presenting what they call the minimal facts approach. Okay, And um, just to define the minimal facts approach, I take a quote from them. It says, 
This approach considers only those data that are so strongly attested historically that they are granted by nearly every scholar who studies the subject, even the rather skeptical ones. They are well evidenced and nearly every, every scholar accepts them. What the minimal facts approach is, it's where they emphasize that there's these uh, four or five, I, there's, I think there might be more than these, but they emphasize that there's at least these four facts that even skeptical scholars, skeptical higher critical scholars believe are historically true. Um, so, and here's a list of the minimal facts. There's five of them. G, fact one is Jesus was crucified and died. Fact two is Jesus' disciples believed that he rose from the dead. Fact three is Paul, an enemy and persecutor of the church, converted and became a church leader. Four, James, Jesus' skeptic brother, converted and became a church leader. Five, Jesus' tomb was found to be empty. So the way Habermas talks about it, what he says is that even skeptical critical scholars, the um, the evidence is such that, the historical evidence is such that, that even skeptical scholars believe that these are facts. And what Habermas says is he surveyed all the literature on this or as, as much as he could find. And that like, oh, like, I think, I can't remember what the percentage is, but I think it's like 90% plus all believe that Jesus was crucified and died. Minimal fact two is that Jesus' disciples believed that he rose from the dead. So it's not saying, two isn't saying that, that he did rise from the dead, but it's it's saying that, that, that Jesus' disciples believed that he rose from the dead. Uh, and then, you know, three is that Paul became a church leader and converted. Uh, James became a church leader and converted. Uh, and, and what they're saying is that even these higher critical scholars, they the evidence is such that 90 plus percent of them believe that these are historical facts. The empty tomb, I think Habermas says, is a little bit less attested. It's like 80 uh, percent. So it's not as strong. But either way, uh, even 80 percent, he says, out of all the people he looked at, believe that it's a historical fact that Jesus' tomb was found to be empty. Okay. Now, I do want to make a statement here. You know, if you study logic, there's a logical fallacy called the argue, called the uh, argument ad populum, uh, also known as the bandwagon fallacy. It, it's it, it's a fallacy that you want to avoid, and it's whenever you try to make an argument saying everyone believes some statement, therefore that statement is true. Okay, it's a fallacy because. Uh, everyone could be wrong just because a lot of people believe something doesn't necessarily make it true. Right. And, you know, and then you can talk about like, you know, at one time everyone thought the earth was flat maybe, uh, but they were wrong. So just because everyone believes something uh, doesn't make it necessarily true. Now Habermas is not doing that. All he's doing here, and this is what I wanted to emphasize because a lot of people get hung up on this. He, he's not saying all these people believe it. Therefore it's true. You know, uh, as Christians, we'd be in a bad way if we do, if we based everything off of what higher critical higher critical scholars believe. All Habermas is doing is saying, "Look, this is how strong the evidence is. The evidence is so strong that even higher critical scholars believe it to be true, and it's like ninety percent, eighty percent." Okay, so ju- he's just emphasizing that the evidence is so strong that it points to people believing it, even though they might not believe Jesus is God. And, but then uh, the main part of the argument is that he uses 
he uses these minimal facts to show that all of the objections to the resurrection, all the major ones that are the most popular objections to the resurrection, none of these can be true considering these five uh, minimal facts, okay? So, for example, I've got here listed a, a bunch of popular objections to the resurrection. Some people have argued that Jesus' resurrection is a legend. Uh, uh, there's fraud theory. Some people believe either the disciples stole the body or someone else stole the body. Uh, there's wrong tomb theory. Maybe everyone got the tomb wrong and, and they thought he was gone, but he was really in another tomb. Apparent death theory. Maybe it looked like he died on the cross, but he really didn't. Psychological phenomena like a, like a group hallucination or, or there's combination theories where people take these all in combination and, uh, and try to say well, maybe it was a combination of one or the two. Now, the minimal facts approach says, well, if you look at these five facts, you'll see that none of these objections work. So, for example, Jesus' resurrection is a legend. Well, if Jesus' resurrection is a legend, that doesn't explain why Paul would become a church leader or why James would convert to become a church leader. If it was a legend, it wouldn't, it wouldn't show, uh, it wouldn't uh, explain why Jesus' disciples believe that he rose from the dead. Does that make sense? Because if it was just a legend, then one of the big kickers with this is that Paul was a high-ranking Jew before he became a Christian. And if Jesus uh, was if Jesus resurrection was just a legend, Paul would have had nothing to gain from becoming a Christian. And the same thing with James as well. If he he grew up near Jesus and the Bible uh, there's passages indicating that he thought Jesus was crazy. Uh, before he uh, died. So neither one of these men would have anything to gain uh, from changing into Christians. In fact, they would have had, they would have had everything to lose. And history attests to both Paul and James being martyred, saying that Jesus rose from the dead. Um, uh, you know, wrong tomb theory, fraud theory. If the disciples, again, if the disciples stole the body and then lied and told everybody Jesus rose from the dead, that wouldn't explain why Paul converted. That wouldn't explain why James converted. If someone else stole the body, that wouldn't, ex- you know, be- because if someone else stole the body, that doesn't explain why Paul thinks that Jesus appeared to him. And it wouldn't explain why James thought that Jesus appeared to him. Um, there's, like, you... You know, to talk about this psychological phenomena, there's there's no in the history of humanity, there is no evidence for group hallucinations. One person might hallucinate something, but people in groups don't all hallucinate the same thing all at once. It doesn't happen. So uh, this is how the minimal facts approach works. They say uh, these minimal facts seem to be very historically accurate. And but when you look at these facts, uh, if you're trying to take this, you know, uh, inference to the best explanation approach, the best explanation is that Jesus really did rise from the dead because all other competing theories don't work giving, given these minimal historical facts. Okay, so that's how the minimal facts approach works. Now, uh, and, and I grew, like, uh, whenever I was going to seminary, this is the argument that I was taught and I love this argument. I think it's got some great things going for it. In recent years, though, um, another approach has kind of come to the fore. 
And, and it's interesting because this is actually something that's been around since the 1700s, 1800s. Uh, the, the maximal data approach, the, the modern trilemma argument. Um, so, yeah, but it, it comes from scholars like uh, Lydia McGrew, uh, is, for example. And I think I have a picture of her book here, if not on these slides, in the next lecture. But uh, scholars like Lydia McGrew have been kind of pointing out reasons why they think that maybe the minimal facts approach, while a good approach, isn't the best um, but yeah, so there's a couple of things about the minimal facts approach. One is that, um, and I've seen this in, in my own apologetic efforts, is, is, is people get hung up on uh, the emphasis on higher critical scholars. Okay, uh, it, it, when you start talking about the minimal facts approach, you start talking about how 90%, 80% of them believe that uh, these are historical facts, there's a couple of problems. One is that people just get hung up on it. Sounds like a uh, bandwagon argument, you know, saying everyone believes it, so therefore it's true. Another thing is uh, we don't really have access to Habermas. Um, to, to my knowledge, maybe maybe he does have it listed somewhere, but to my knowledge, no one really has access to Habermas's uh, uh, list of scholars and who says what and where. You know, it it, it all relies on that. And while it's true, um, it you know we just don't you can't just show someone and demonstrate that ninety percent you can't demonstrate the ninety percent or eighty percent number. Um, <clears throat> another thing that has more to do with methodology is that the minimal facts approach is uh, so. I, I think Lydia McGrew would argue that it's giving up too much ground to the to the skeptic or the non-believer, right? Uh, it, it's treating the the New Testament more along the lines of the uh, guilty until proven innocent approach than it is the, the other way around. It's saying, you know, maybe the rest of it's garbage, but at least these four or five facts are things that people think are true. And that's why uh, Lydia McGrew and uh, I think her husband, uh, Timothy McGrew, and other scholars have been kind of reviving this trilemma argument recently. Um, so... This modern trilemma argument, Lydia McGrew calls it the maximal data approach, and it, because it's going at it from a different perspective. And what the what the main idea is that the New Testament gets so many things right that we don't really have any reason to doubt it whenever it says that Jesus rose from the dead. You know, it, it, they get little details that don't even matter right. So why would they be saying the truth in every single little thing and then all of a sudden not telling the truth when they talk about Jesus uh, rising from the dead? Uh, but but here's here's a formulation of it, and I wasn't going to talk a lot about it because, like I said in the next lecture, I was going to um, defend it for the entire lecture. But yeah, here's, here's how it's done. Uh, premise one says either the disciples were deceivers they were mistaken or they were telling the truth. Two, they were not deceivers. Three, they were not merely mistaken. Four, therefore, the disciples were telling the truth. So, you know, with premise one, it's saying either the disciples were deceivers, they were mistaken, or they were telling the truth. Now, notice how this is talking about the disciples. It's not, It's you know, it's like with the uh, the tri the uh, Lord liar lunatic. It's it's assuming that Jesus was a person, and that he you know all this. 
<clears throat> but with this, we're talking about the disciples. They're saying they they were either deceivers, they were mistaken, or they were telling the truth. Okay, so we're talking about what the disciples were claiming. We're not assuming things about Jesus beforehand. So whenever you go to prove uh, premise two, they were not deceivers. That's when you can just methodically get into all the stuff that we that we've already talked about. You can talk about the bibliographical test showing the manuscripts are reliable. You can talk about the earmarks of historicity. Um, you can talk about undesigned coincidences. And we're going to be talking about all this as, as we go along. And I'll go into more detail into it. Now, a lot of what I'm going to talk about next time is going to rely on things I've already said. Because if I presented everything that you could present on premise two, then I would be talking for hours and hours. Um, but, uh, but I'll talk about, I'll defend premise two even more and show us more things to, to, uh, to consider that, that provides evidence for the disciples telling the truth in the next lecture. Uh, but yeah, that's what you do with in premise two. You, you show all these reasons why we think the, the new Testament writings are reliable and they were telling the truth. Uh, and they weren't deceiving people. You also, in premise two, you also talk about how they had changed lives, and they all were martyred for what they were saying. And that's a very, that's a very, you know, I'm going to say it again in the next lecture, but I, I can't say that enough. The disciples went to their deaths saying that Jesus rose from the dead, and they saw it with their own eyes. If they were lying about it, why did they go to their own deaths? Because, you know, uh, it's like J. Warner Wallace says, when people... Uh, it, it, usually he says when it, when murder's involved, there's three reasons why people do it. They do it for power, they do it for money, they do it for sex. If the disciples were making up this this huge lie, uh, they were either probably doing it for one of those three things, money or power or sex. And whenever they are being faced with their own martyrdom, why would they still say it's true and go to their death doing it? There's nobody who wants money or power who's going who's to also give up their life for it and, and pretend like it was true all the way to the end. That just seems to be to me to be unbelievable. Um, because, anyways, um, so yeah, premise two is defended that way, and we'll see that next time. Premise three, they were mere, not merely mistaken. <laughs> premise three is actually pretty easy. They claimed that they were with Jesus for 40 days after he rose from the, after he rose from the dead. Uh, it would be pretty hard to mistake somebody else for Jesus, right? Um, you, you can't just, you know, and, and I'll talk about this more next time, but really quickly, if I spent summer break with somebody, I, I think I would have plenty of chances to realize that that was who, it, who I thought it was, especially if it's one of my close friends or family, right? So they, they couldn't have been mistaken and mistook Jesus for somebody else. And if he really died, it would be hard to be mistaken about him coming back if he really was gone. So anyways, number three is one of the easier ones. The main time you spend is with premise two. Um, but yeah, so uh, we'll be talking about this next. Uh, but this is the trilemma argument. It's I think it's also pretty easy to remember as well. Uh, it's 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 just maybe a, just a little bit more difficult to remember than the Kalam argument is, but I, it, it's easy to remember. Uh, and you can just start talking about all the evidence really easily. So yeah, th that's the trilemma argument. And, uh, we'll be talking about that more in the next lecture really quickly. I've been mentioning that there's extra biblical sources referring to Jesus. And I actually was going to mention a couple of these, uh, in the next lecture, 
But I just wanted to present these to you while we had the time and to, you know, I've been trying to space out all this evidence for Jesus uh, in all these. But really quickly, I wanted to show you four extra biblical sources talking about Jesus. And there's more to say about them. And I'm going to talk more about Josephus and Tacitus in the next lecture. So here I was just going to briefly mention who these people are and briefly uh, read the quote. But just to, so you know um, that there's, you know, what these are is that these are, this is not from the Bible. These are historians from ancient history writing about either Jesus himself or Christians and what Christians said about him. So I just want to present this at the end of this lecture just to, just to provide a little bit more um, evidence that we would use for, for um, defending premise two of the trilemma argument. But yeah, if you're not aware of these, uh, I'm just going to show you writings talking about Jesus and Christians from Josephus, Tacitus, uh, Lucian and someone named Mara Barserapian. So these are all writings about Jesus and Christians that aren't in the Bible. Um, if you don't know who Josephus was, he was a first century Jewish Roman historian. He was born in Jerusalem, was captured by the Romans in AD 67, a few years before the, the temple was destroyed. But yeah, Josephus lived from AD 37 to 97. Uh, I, I believe yeah, his work is called Antiquities. And in 18.3, he says, Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was one who wrought surprising feats. He was the Christ. He appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. Now, just, uh, if you'll, uh, Josephus here, we don't think he would have actually said worded it the way he did, but I'll talk about this more in the next one. What's important is that he we, we do think there's that this is him actually mentioning Jesus. Okay. Um, we think that a Christian possibly, you know, flared his words a little bit uh, in recording down what he said. But I was going to talk about that more. Um, there's there's other manuscripts that, that have that quote, and they seem to be uh, less flamboyant, uh, less biased towards Christianity. But we'll talk about that here in a second. I mean, in the next lecture. Tacitus, writing from AD 55 to 120, Tacitus was a senator and historian of the Roman Empire. In his annals, he wrote, Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Um, yeah, so here, uh, you know, there's you can see a lot of... Uh, Tacitus is mentioning, and this is from, you know, he lived during the first, second centuries. He's mentioning Christians, uh, mentioning that they uh, they suffered, they were uh, persecuted, like we believe, and they they worshipped Jesus. So, pretty interesting. Lucian writing in the second century. Now, uh, Lucian is a Syrian who wrote Greek satire. So, uh, and this is this is a part of the enemy attestation, by the way. And I was I don't think I was going to mention this in the next lecture, so I wanted to mention it here. This is enemy attestation, <laughs> okay? Uh, 
Writing satire, uh, a work that he wrote called The Death of Peregrine, he wrote, The Christians, you know, worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. You see, these misguided creatures start with the gener general conviction that they are immortal for all time, which explains the contempt of death and voluntary self-devotion, which are so common among them. And then it was impressed on them by their original lawgiver that they are all brothers from the moment that they are converted and deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage and live after his laws. All this they take quite on faith, with the result that they despise all worldly goods alike, regarding them merely as common property. So, you know, you see here Lucian writing uh, satire, making fun of Christians, is admitting to us from the second century that Christians back then, at that time, already believed uh, that Jesus was crucified and died for them and that he was God because they worship him. So really interesting. Uh, the last one I was going to leave you with is from, uh, they think it's uh, dated somewhere from the first to the third century, uh, written by uh, someone, uh, Marabar Serapian, uh, who was, who was uh, writing to his son in prison. He wrote, What advantage did the Athenians gain from putting Socrates to death? Famine and plague came upon them as a judgment for their crime. What advantage did the men of Samos gain from burning Pythagoras? In a moment their land was covered with sand. What advantage did the Jews gain from executing their wise king? It was just after that that their kingdom was abolished. God justly avenged these three wise men. The Athenians died of hunger. The Samians uh, were overwhelmed by the sea. The Jews, ruined and driven from their land, live in complete dispersion. But Socrates did not die for good. He lived on in the statue of Hera. Nor did the wise king die for good. He lived on in the teaching which he had given. So just so interesting. Um, if you aren't aware of extra-biblical uh, mentionings of Jesus, uh, let me go ahead and, and go ahead forward in my slides. I, I recommend this book by Gary Habermas called The Historical Jesus, Ancient Evidence for the Life of Christ. In this book, he surveys extra-biblical mentionings of Jesus and talks about them and, and how they point to, to Christianity and to what Christians believed. Um, so that that kind of th this was definitely a book uh, where I first learned about these things, and and I, I find it so interesting. It's in a great book. Uh, here's here's some of the books I've been talking about: the Case for the Resurrection of Jesus by uh, Gary Habermas and Michael Icona. This is the book where they present the minimal facts approach, hidden in plain view, undesigned coincidences in the Gospels and Acts is a book written by Lydia McGrew where she presents the maximal data approach. So I recommend both of these. Don't take me to be saying in these lectures that, that one is so much better than the other that I wouldn't consider the other. I think they, they, they all, all of them make some great points, and anybody interested in defending the resurrection of Jesus would um, highly um, profit from reading both of those. Okay, Another one, uh, if you weren't familiar or hadn't heard of it, is uh, from Sean McDowell. He wrote a book called The Fate of the Apostles, Examining the Martyrdom Accounts of the Closest Followers of Jesus. Uh, in this one, you know, a lot of books have been written on the evidence for Jesus' resurrection, and, and not that many people from an apologetic standpoint considered all the evidence for uh, the, the historical evidence pointing to the apostles going to their death. So that's what Sean McDowell did in this book. He shows all the historical account, or, or he, he discusses the historical evidence pointing to 
the apostles going to their deaths. A lot of them were martyred. You know, we don't think every single one of them was like um, the apostle John wasn't uh, wasn't martyred, uh, but most of them were, and and Sean McDowell covers that evidence, so I recommend that. But yeah, I just wanted to show, you know, discuss why Jesus' resurrection is so important. Uh, show those three arguments, and then and then expose you to some of the biblical, extra biblical evidence for Jesus. Uh, but that's that's it for this lecture. And in the next one, we are going to. I was going to specifically show you the maximal data approach, the modern trilemma argument. So, uh, but before we before we close out, I was going to remind you of our questions for reflection. Our first question is: Do you think Jesus' disciples would have continued to follow him if he faked his death and/or survived crucifixion? Two: If the disciples were lying, would they have included the testimonies of women in their gospel accounts? Three, what is the significance of Jesus appearing to hundreds of people after his resurrection? Four, if the Gospels are made-up stories, do you think that the writers would portray the disciples as confused doubters of Jesus? And five, if the, is the disciples' willingness to risk their lives any more impressive than a suicide bomber's willingness to die for his religion? If you don't already know the answer to that, I think I said it already in one of the previous lectures. Uh, but uh, I look forward to hearing from you guys as always, so... Let me know in the comments or, or shoot me a message from my academic website uh, if you want to talk about any of these things. I have a new quote for you. I like to quote close these out with a quote. I've got a new quote from Albert Moeller. And this has to do with what we're going to be talking about in the next few lectures as well. Albert Moeller says, Inerrancy is nothing less than the affirmation that the Bible, as the Word of God written, is totally true and totally trustworthy. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. This is the Bible's own testimony about itself, and it is the historic faith of the Christian church. Uh, before I let you go, as always, I wanted to talk about Southern Evangelical Seminary and Bible College. Uh, I highly recommend this school. Like I've said before, they have uh, a lot of online programs and also a lot of face-to-face -face programs. To my knowledge, almost anything can be done either online or in person, but they have certificates, uh, undergraduate degrees, master degrees, graduate degrees, all the way up to a PhD. Uh, if you are interested in these apologetic topics I've been talking about, if you're interested in theology, philosophy, apologetics, I highly recommend you try out Southern Evangelical Seminary. Uh, it's 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 close to um, Charlotte, North Carolina, but like I said, they have a lot of online programs as well, uh, and it is a great school. So also is Kingdom Preparatory Academy, which is a classical Christian school in Lubbock, Texas. If you are looking for a classical Christian alternative to education, Kingdom, Prepata Kingdom Preparatory Academy is a great alternative in the Lubbock area because uh, they have programs all the way from pre-K to 12th grade, and uh, it's classical education. You know, they teach your kids to, uh, they teach them how to think, not what to think, and it's all taught from a biblical perspective, uh, so you don't get a lot of what's happening in public education today. Uh, but I highly recommend this uh, school. My kids go there. We love it. Uh, it's a uh, it's a university model, so students actually only go to class uh, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Tuesday and Thursday, most of the time, they are at home doing homework so they don't even go to school on Tuesday and Thursday. So by the time they get to they get to college, 
they'll be used to doing something like that and they'll be used to doing work on their own at home. I Like I said, I highly recommend it. If you want to check out more information on it, you go to kingdomprep.org uh, or you can Google it and give them a call or uh, drop by. Uh, but I look forward to... Uh, Finally, presenting this one major argument for Jesus' resurrection in the next lecture. Hope to see you there, and I hope you have a great day.